pod and market. First, I would like to welcome all our listeners back to the pod. It has been several months since our last podcast, and I would like to express my regret for not putting out more episodes. We have been up and back to our studio space since March, and it has been a little difficult to get remote setup working. However, it is working, and we're happy with all the help and advice you received to get this going. We have written a note addressing the crisis and how it's affected the podcast. It's on the website. We are glad to announce that we're making up for lost time by trying to record and release a podcast at least once a week for the rest of the season, and maybe even beyond. However, we will need your help. Please email the podcast with guest and topic suggestions. We have done this with at least three podcast episodes, and those episodes have been really popular. Thank you, and now on to this episode's subject. In 1925, the Shriners constructed the Salam Temple, colloquially known as the Mosque, on Broad Street. They hired noted Newark architect Frank Grad, who, funny enough, designed the building that I live in. The construction ended up costing $2 million. Eventually, that building evolved into what we now call Newark Symphony Hall, the most celebrated performance venue in the city of Newark. The New Jersey Symphony Orchestra, the New Jersey State Opera, McDonald's Gospel Fest, the New Jersey Ballet, the Geraldine R. Dodge Poetry Festival, and the Newark Boys Choir School have all called that space home. Performers over the years have included Judy Garland, Bob Dylan, Patti LaBelle, Richard Pryor, Amalia Rodriguez, Gladys Knight, The Rolling Stones, Parliament Funkadelic, Tony Bennett, and Eric Clapton. It has also held the funerals of Amiri Baraka and Jerry Grant, as well as a wedding between local artists that was profiled in the New York Times. Frequent listeners to the podcast may even remember in the beginning of my interview with Liz Del Tufo that she saw Martin Luther King Jr. speak there a week before his assassination. Even your host himself has performed in this space when he was a member of the First Avenue School Handbell Choir. The Sarah Vaughan Concert Hall, its main venue, seats 3,500 audience members, and there's even a 200-seat black box theater on the upper floors. Below the concert hall is the terrace ballroom, and the building also houses several dance studios and classroom spaces, as well as practice spaces. Symphony Hall, however, is also a reflection of the city itself. The space hit a sustained period of disinvestment and funding shortages over the last few decades, though I would definitely not say that the space was neglected. Though the space is in dire need of renovation and capital investment, it is still an active performance and community space. Joining us today to talk about Symphony Hall and what is in store for this historic space is Tanisha Nashler, President and CEO of Newark Symphony Hall since 2018. Tanisha is unique. She is the only black woman leading a performing arts center in the state. She is a self-professed entrepreneur, social change agent, and community developer with a background in economic development and the arts. Having led the Arts Council of Princeton and served as Director of Economic Development in Trenton, She's also an adjunct professor at Drexel in their entertainment and arts management program. I'll post more of her accomplishments in the show notes. First, I want to welcome Tanisha to the podcast. Uh, so my initial question to you is, uh, how are you and uh, how is Symphony Hall? Well, Manny, first of all, thank you so much for having me on Pod Market. Um, how am I? Listen, I, I, I keep telling people, honestly, I'm, I'm hanging on a little bit by the thread. Uh, in addition to working remotely, as we all are, um, I'm also at the same table with my fifth grader and ninth grader who are doing school remotely. So it is uh, very interesting. Although some days I think I'm actually the annoying coworker because we all wear headphones so that we don't disturb each other. Uh, with the audio from our devices, their Chromebooks and my computer. But whenever they say something interesting, I, I want to know what they're responding to. Um, so 
that's how I am. And Symphony Hall, listen, Symphony Hall is, um, it's still there. It's still standing. Um, we do have people who are operating the building during the day because of the way uh, the building is um, structured. You, we actually have to have someone in our boiler room uh, nearly 24 seven, but we're doing great. Um, and thank you for asking. Yeah, no, it's really important. I mean, I, the last several podcasts I've had have focused on, you know, how people in Newark have been affected by um, the COVID crisis, whether that, you know, is small businesses or residents in this town. And, you know, we kind of forget that large institutions themselves kind of have to adapt and figure out ways to, you know, deal with this crisis. And, I, and I'm kind of wondering, what was it like back in March when things really started shutting down? Did you have performances lined up and events? that had to be canceled or changed? Oh yeah, um, we we uh, had to cancel everything and just, um, I mean, we lost six figures in revenue just in the first couple of booked events, just in the first couple of months uh, of shutdown. So that was pretty devastating. And then speaking of, you know, personal devastation, unfortunately, two of my colleagues, um, my staff members, they lost six family members between them in those early days. So like everyone, it was it was a bit chaotic, to be honest with you. Um, and now we are have, I guess, settled into a sort of new normal. Yeah. Um, and so there haven't really been any events in Symphony Hall, right, since March? There have been no actual physical events in Symphony Hall. However, we have uh, been able to do things such as a virtual fundraiser, uh, that the staff uh, did that we did actually for our work around an initiative we created called Embrace Newark. So that was a deaf poetry uh, reunion event uh, that um, also introduced three or four uh, Newark-based uh, poets to become deaf poets, but it was 50 poets total. And yes, we did that online. And then for our Symphony of Survival uh, component of Embrace Newark, we actually installed imagery in the windows, but there was no actual activity that has gone on inside of Symphony Hall, except, as I said, operating the boiler room. But other than that, um, no other events or anything like that. Um, it's again, we, we lost 100% of our event operating income uh, due to COVID-19. Right, and thank you for letting me know that because you know people often forget that even if a place does shut down physically, there's still ways to you know, profile it virtually, um, like events like the Deaf Poet uh, event, right? Um, but you know, that's, it sounds like, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, events are your bread and butter as a performance venue, right? It's a, that's how you make a lot of the money that helps you keep the space, you know, thriving and operating. Um, uh, what, what, how has that impacted Symphony Hall's budget? So, again, we lost 100% of our uh, event income. And, yes, that was our operating model was revenue from, um, from events activities. Um, it's substantially our revenue. We also do receive, because we are uh, a city-owned property um, and we have had a long-standing relationship with City Hall in terms of our nonprofit managing Newark Symphony Hall, we have a stipend and that stipend has helped 
uh, our carrying costs. Um, it probably would surprise you to know that even though we are quote unquote closed, we still have PSCNG utility bill that's in the five figures. So there's still some significant carrying costs of the building. And by the way, those are all things that I'm hoping to address as we renovate and upgrade and upgrade the uh, mechanical system and essentially green our 95-year-old building so that even um, a shutdown, for instance, should mean that we substantially reduce our costs, um, hopefully below $15,000 a month. So so that is something that I'm, I'm working on. But, but again, um, I... I uh, Yes, we lost 100% of our revenue. I was able to secure money uh, for operations from things like the federal PPP program um, and some other grants that were uh, made available to organizations like ours as a form of COVID-19 relief. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you for emphasizing that. Like, you know, it's it, it's been an exceptionally hard time, I can imagine, for all, especially that boiler room that seems to, <laughs> to both, you know, cause your utility bills to go up and cause you to have to manage uh, um, the space. But, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, sort of larger goals that you've had for Symphony Hall since you've started. And I would love to talk about that. Like, obviously, COVID has impacted that. But, you know, let's Let's talk about the future of Symphony Hall. Like, what are the grand plans to make this space, you know, shine in a way that it did in the past, but maybe even greater? Thank you for the question. So this is a, a lot of what I um, essentially, literally took my board through a PowerPoint to talk through how we could use this time to lean into the plans that we had. So we always had this plan to renovate the building in time for our 100th anniversary, which is in 2025. And so what I suggested is that we use this time to begin work on that process. And so it is a $40 million renovation. There was a preservation plan that was a state-funded preservation plan uh, that was finalized in 2016. And I believe that I'm merely stewarding the implementation of that preservation plan so we have been raising money. Um, I'd like to, again, point out that uh, we went back to the state and we received uh, a $750,000 grant from the state of New Jersey to be part of the first phase of our renovation process. We divided it out into three phases. Phase one is the uh, what we call the building envelope. So pretty much everything around the outside. Um, again, as, as systems in terms of being a building, that's the, um, the system that is our building envelope is 95 years old. And so there are some breaches and um, things that have caused water damage inside. And so that money is going to be used towards that. Our phase one is a $3.5 million endeavor. And I am still raising money for the balance of that. But the goal is to begin that phase of work. Uh, we have now had enough money, obviously, to hire an architect, so we have gotten that part. Um, and the goal is to actually get into the construction, uh, which is the substantial portion of the $3.5 million. The architect alone is, is about $200,000, but the bulk of the money is for the actual construction. The goal is to get that work started next summer. Phase two is the greening of the building. So that's the mechanical system. And that's about a one and a half million dollar 
uh, project. And phase three is the most substantial, and that's the interior renovation. And that's a $30 million project. And altogether, all three phases is going to be, they're going to create 500 construction jobs and opportunities for 50 small businesses. Uh, and being a Newarker, you know how important that economic activity is for the city. So I'd like to think that our work is definitely also about what we're gonna be putting on the stage, but thinking about ways to be very inclusive in even the approach of the renovation itself and inclusive of the local community. So um, I kind of gave this whole process a name. Um, I'm sort of a history buff and uh, when people think about uh, emerging out of times like this, um, many analogies have been made to the Great Depression and the emergence out of that. Um, and if you remember social studies, uh, that time period, um, there was the New Deal and the creation of the WPA, which also had a construction component and a number of public works projects. That's why many, many buildings were done during that time period. A lot of armories were done during that time period. But there also was a, con a, a culture component. The federal government was actually hiring people to do uh, plays and to do music and film. And so I created a term for our renovation process, which also is going to be a revitalization process, which is also going to involve construction, as I mentioned, but also culture. And so I'm calling it Symphony Works. And um, I'm excited about having a number of partners in that Symphony Works process, including the city of Newark, of course, as well as the Lincoln Park Coast Cultural District, as well as Newark Arts. And the three organizations, nonprofit organizations, Newark Arts, Lincoln Park Coast Cultural District, and Newark Symphony Hall have come to together to create something called the Lincoln Park Alliance. And the Lincoln Park Alliance is really the vehicle via which we're gonna be implementing Symphony Works. Wow, um, so first, let me just say, you tug at my heartstrings as a history teacher. I used to teach high school history in this town. And hearing about the WPA, uh, <laughs> you know, the first thing I think of is um, Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes and, you know, Orson Welles putting on an entire black cast of Macbeth. Um, and these like kind of amazing arts programs that came out of it, but also the big construction works. And here in Newark too, um, the courthouse I worked in when I was a lawyer has these WPA paintings in them. And I love that you're connecting it to that past. Those, the, so you're talking about they have murals from the yeah, WPA. They murals. have WPA murals yes. in, the, in the courthouse. Mm -hmm. uh, my judge specifically wanted them kept in there um, because uh, there was some, some renovation that was going on in the old courthouse building, not the new one across the street. And he wanted those um, paintings left alone. Um, and they're, they're kind of stark because they've done that WPA style. They're not like classical, they're a little more like modernist. Um, but they're really beautiful. And I'm so glad that you're thinking in terms of those larger arcs. Um, and you guys have thought deeply. I mean, these, these three phases sound um, really important. But what's also, I think, really cool about them is that you are also thinking ahead because I think people forget with renovation, it's not just slapping on paint, but it's how do you make a building up to date and also last longer, right? And, you're, and the, the fact that you use the word green several times is really exciting to hear. Yeah, I think, you know, sustainability is all of that. Um, before I forget, because I am a forgetful person, um, I, you, you mentioned some aspects of the WPA. Um, I don't know if you know 
that as part of their, uh, the, the WPA, there was also something they called the Negro Units, mm-hmm. which was the Federal Theater Project. And there were 10 of them across the country. And Newark was one of them. Newark was one of the uh, locations of the Negro Units. So those are all of the sort of things that I want us to, um, to draw upon and think about as we build on uh, what we are doing. And in terms of the building and construction, one of the other things in terms of thinking this whole thing through is, yes, there's going to be creation of 500 jobs of historic preservation, which is very specific. Do we have enough people in the city that are skilled in those areas? So once one of the other things, and my, my um, suspicion is no. And so one of the other things that we're doing is partnering with the National Trust for Historic Preservation to create the first ever historic preservation construction trades uh, program, training program, where there's a job at the end. And that job is going to be on Newark Symphony Hall. So it's building on prior successes of construction training programs to upskill those people in the sort of idiosyncrasies, right? So there's, you know, repairing terrazzo, repairing marble, repairing plaster, all of those sort of things um, are the things that we're going to be working on. And I will tell you, this was a cold pitch. I cold pitched the CEO of the National Trust uh, for Historic Preservation saying, I want us to do this and this is going to be significant. And this consider this a pilot that you could roll out in communities across the country. So I'm excited about that. I, I love the image of you just like finding this person in the elevator and being like, let me tell you about Symphony Hall. <laughs> yes, it's the virtual elevator that yes. is LinkedIn. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, uh, the modern world. Actually, um, there, there are a couple of different topics I want to talk about, but since we talked about the social media, Let's talk about the future of Symphony Hall, particularly with a millennial and a post-millennial audience where, you know, TikTok is the dominant medium and not in-person performances. What do you think Symphony Hall should be doing to reach out to younger audiences, both here in Newark, but also outside of Newark? So that's really interesting. Um, we're, we're still thinking that through, to be honest with you. A lot of the programs that we're talking about developing Uh, because we are developing them now in the virtual space. So for instance, um, and I'm, you know, this is not ready to announce yet, but there was someone that um, is developing, had developed a profile on LinkedIn that I just started following. And um, the profile is focused on people of color and what I would describe uh, as traditionally thought of as Eurocentric art forms. And so um, just like how, you know, these various uh, uh, pages had been jumping up, um, especially after George Floyd and, and a heightened awareness of racial uh, inequality. So things like opera is racist and, you know, ballet is racist. And it's not one of these, but it's it's something similar. And I reached out to her and I said, you know, I'd really like to highlight the people that you are profiling on your uh, Instagram page, excuse me, your Instagram page, um, in terms of the challenges that they have in their uh, their art. But I want to highlight them in performance, and let's do that on 
the social media of Newark Symphony Hall. And so this woman is not based in this area, but it just happens that she has a family member that lives near here. I mean, like she literally isn't. She lives in like North Carolina, but she has a family member that lives right outside of Newark. So we actually met on her drive back to socially distanced to anybody listening. So it was socially distanced and it was outside, but we met. And then we brainstormed about how we could actually do this in person when the world opens back up. So I think a lot of those sort of things of connecting uh, virtual performances and then connecting those to what we have in the actual venue and getting people to come into the venue that may have first experienced Symphony Hall uh, from a virtual stage is one of the ways that we'll be able to to make some more connections. But you know, to be honest, it's, it's, it's really one of those things where we're just sort of brainstorming now and, and figuring thing out, things out the, like the rest of the sector, right. like the rest of the sector. Yeah, no, it's, I, I only bring it up because it's, it's funny if you look at the history when I read the names of who performed there earlier, you know, you see names like, you know, um, the Rolling Stones or Richard Pryor. And, the, you know, the Rolling Stones are rock music and Richard Pryor's comedy, right? And it's like, you know, I think people forget that a place like Symphony Hall isn't just a um, an orchestra space, right? Uh, but it, it can house a lot of these other kind of really cool performances. And, you know, I, I kind of imagine that millennials and post millennials are not going to just, you know, watch everything on their phones, but they'll actually want to still experience these things live. Well, millennials actually do prefer things live. I, you know, well, if we're talking about millennials that are um, working professionals or, or people who just work, period, right, outside, they love experiences. I think that's why this, this COVID is so tough um, on them because of their experience. I am not a millennial. I'm a Gen X, so I'm okay being in the house all the time. But but that is one of the things that I'm I'm seeking to figure out and tap into to how do we make this multi-sensory sort of experiences, both uh, virtual as well as in the physical space. But I want to go back to something that you said in terms of Symphony Hall and the various things. Yes, we're, we had everything. We had rock and roll. Um, the Rolling Stones, it was their first tour, I want to let you know, uh, that they uh, stopped at Symphony Hall in 1965, I believe. And Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells was their opening act. I just found this out. It's amazing <laughs> to me. Um, Jimi Hendrix performed at Symphony Hall the day after Martin Luther King was assassinated. Um, to me, that's also fascinating. There's a guy online that is right now, if you know anybody that has an original poster of Bob Dylan's uh, early concerts at Symphony Hall, he's willing to pay $5,000 for those concerts. So uh, con those concert posters. So everything you could possibly think of in terms of genres. When Senator Teresa Ruiz came to Symphony Hall, she actually came and attended the Preservation New Jersey Gala there. She got on stage and said that her parents used to come to Symphony Hall to see uh, Tito Puente and Celia Cruz. And so I then, of course, went digging and found a Tito Puente poster uh, from when he was there. So it's amazing the number of people that have come through what symphony hall all genres of entertainment so thank you for pointing that out yeah i just want to interject just add one more to this list uh, for another big community in newark but um i tried so hard and i was able to confirm using some youtube videos but there's no written record of it but 
um, I'm sure maybe in your archives there is, and I would love to, you know, in, in less crazy times, go there and, and search for this. But Amalia Rodrigues, who's this huge name in Portugal, like she's a national figure there, is this famous singer, and she mm-hmm. performed there. And I remember relatives of mine talking about her performance there. And I tried so hard online during my research for this to find confirmation that it occurred. And I was able to find enough, like, circumstantial evidence to say that it did happen. But um, <laughs> similar to the Bob Dylan poster, I want, I want to find that, like, you know, program. It was in the 80s, and I want to find that program that said that it did occur. Uh, but she's, like, a, a huge, like, uh, you mention her name in the Iron Bound, and you'll get, like, you know, fa- you know uh, tears of, of, like, joy and sadness because she was such a huge uh, figure in Portuguese musical history. Um, so I want to I want to do something around that. So one of the other things and you didn't you didn't ask, but one of the other things <laughs> that we're working on right now Um, So we did get a grant last year from the New Jersey Council for the Humanities to do something around the relationship between the black community and Newark Symphony Hall, right? And as we were starting this process, there was someone who, again, via social media, um, mentioned the Hispanic community and, and the Latino community and specifically the Puerto Rican community. And I said, you know what, let me see what I can find out. I also really was curious about the Portuguese community and and to find out if there was, I would really be interested to find out how many other sort of icons had actually come through Symphony Hall. Um, And I'm doing this not just because I want to tie a particular population to Symphony Hall, but I just think all of these things are really important for people to see themselves and to see their communities. And I'm also curious about all of these other cultures that have come through. So yeah, you now have actually, um, I've written the name down <laughs> so that I can go search myself. And I, and I promise you, I'll, I'll email you the name separately to make sure it's it's a very, uh, she's not obscure, like you look her up, she's actually like Grammys and stuff, but um, if you're Portuguese, you know who she is. If you're not Portuguese, it's you have to be a little bit like into world music to know who she is, but I'll gladly share that with you. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Um, and I do know some I, I knew, do know some some folks. And um, well, before I came to Newark, I my um, my unfortunately now late husband has very good friends who family goes very far back in uh, Newark, the Rosa family. So I am um, I'm going to have to tap my resources mm-hmm. too to get some more information about the, the history. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, um, actually. So, you know, I think a lot of these performers came to Symphony Hall because it was the venue to go to, right? And um, in, I, I want to get this year right, I don't have it in front of me, but in 1997, something big happened to Newark, and that was the opening of the New Jersey Performing Arts Center. And I'm wondering, what's the relationship like having this large performance venue open up, you know, a half mile, well, a little more than that, probably three quarters of a mile down the road from you? Um, and then, like maybe to to another extent, um, the Prudential Center Arena, where another that's a lo- another large venue where concerts come through. What what is that like being the historic older brother or older sister to these institutions? So for me, I think it's an incredible opportunity, actually. Um, and I and I'll tell you how I uh, positioned it in a second. But I'll I'll tell you what other people had said when I started. Um, other people had said. It's impossible to be competitive when you have NJ Pack and, as you said, um, the even newer Prudential Center. That you know, where do you fit? And so, 
for me, uh, my very first fundraising, big fundraising request, I opened with that. And um, I said, you know, I'm from New York and forgive my references, but I think you'll get it when I when I roll this out is what I said to them. I said, well, you know, to me, the Prudential Center is like Madison Square Garden. And I said, you know, an NJ Pack is like Lincoln Center. And that Newark Symphony Hall is is Newark's Carnegie Hall. Exactly. I knew exactly where you're going with that. And uh, they got it instantly. Instantly. Not not to play favorites here. um, Like Carnegie Hall, you probably have the best sound of the bunch. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And and we do. Um, You know, I think it was... um, who was it? Isaac Stern, who said that we had the best acoustics on the East Coast. So, um, and once, and this is also probably urban legend, but someone else also told me that at one point, uh, Tony Bennett was performing, I love Tony Bennett, was performing at Symphony Hall and the audio went out. And he was like, I don't need any microphone and just sang with no uh, electrified um, amplification and they could hear him all the way up in the very last row. So yeah, our acoustics are incredible. Yeah, I can attest to that. I've actually been, I've had the, the fortunate uh, ability to have gone into an empty, the empty main uh, venue, uh, the Sarah Vaughn Hall, um, and hear exactly what you're talking about. It's, it's kind of hard to describe to someone without showing it, but. Uh, I can tell you it's true. You can have someone stand on that stage, and if as long as they project and they know how to project, you can hear them clear as a bell in those back rows. It's just astounding to do that. Um, but I, I love that analogy. The you know the Carnegie Hall Lincoln Center uh, Madison Square Garden analogy that this is an ecosystem and not a a, a cutthroat competition between these venues. Um, are there any? I don't know how much you can share, but are there any like collaboration efforts that are going on? Do you, as institutions, get together and talk about what you can do for Newark's uh, performance scene? Yes. Well, you know, sort of, well, first of all, before I got the job, I actually knew people at those venues. Um, There is a senior executive at uh, the Prudential Center, for instance, who was the chief of staff to the state treasurer when I was working in uh, Trenton. So I knew him that way. Uh, and then um, the CEO of NJ Pack, uh, I sat on a board for, with him for, for nine years. So I knew all of these executives before I even came into the role. And, and I'm sure that there was an advantage uh, to that. But then during the pandemic, we sort of had to come together. Um, The mayor created a a reopening strike force and all of the major cultural institutions, including the uh, director, CEO of the Newark Museum, came together to talk about what does reopening look like. And that naturally also uh, supported conversations around collaboration. And you're right, I can't talk about the details yet of the things that we've talked about, but I will tell you that it is pretty exciting to have received a call from them saying, hey, you know, I was thinking about what we were talking about and let's do this. And then this is not just about 
during pandemic time, they're talking about when everything opens back up, let's have real relationships and collaborations. Um, and I know that that's something that the mayor was hoping for as well. So he's getting his wish <laughs> that we all really work together collaboratively. Um, and also finally, I am being very intentional and in even thinking about the future of how I program um, sort of against, when I say against, in a complementary way to what they're doing. We should have our, um, we should not be competing. Um, it's not something that is, um, that we need to do. We should be an ecosystem so that we can continue to attract more people into the city to take care, to, to, I was going to say take care, but to also take in the entertainment that we can offer them. So that is the way that I believe. And, and I'm glad that you used the word like ecosystem. Yeah. Um, well, if you want to like even broaden that out a little bit more, I want to actually go back to something you mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, which people kind of forget about, but Symphony Hall is not a standalone institution. It's in, as you described, in the Lincoln Park neighborhood. So I'm wondering, what does Symphony Hall mean for that neighborhood, which is often touted as this beautiful area, but also doesn't get as much press as, let's say, the Ironbound does, or downtown, or even Jane Street, for that matter? Yeah, so, you know, it, it's it's an anchor, clearly, in the Lincoln Park neighborhood. Um, the Lincoln Park neighborhood is also has so much history. Um, it was called the Coast, as you probably know. Um, it was an arts and entertainment district um, at one point, you know, a red light district. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so there was all kinds of things that you could get into in the Coast. And so when there's this whole trend, as you probably know, in urban planning around this idea of creative place making, and we don't use that. We say place keeping. This is about um, reclaiming our rightful place in this idea of an artist district. So that's what I am working very collaboratively with as part of this Lincoln Park Alliance. The Lincoln Park Coast Cultural District nonprofit has been doing a whole lot of work in creating activity in, the, in Lincoln Park itself with their festival. And so we're also thinking about how what, can we continue to build this out, continue to uh, think about what it looks like to have locally owned retail that happens down there that really complements what's going to be happening at Newark Symphony Hall and adjacent to Newark Symphony Hall. There is a, a new development that has been approved. Uh, unfortunately, the Boys Chorus School and another building are going to be demolished and it is going to, in its place, though, is going to be an 111 unit apartment building that the developers have also said that they plan to put a an, an art gallery on the first floor. So I do hope that it, it comes as promised, uh, because I do believe that it will, again, support all of the things that we have been um, touting, uh, and Lincoln Park Coast Cultural District in particular, have been touting for years as an artist district. Yeah, it's kind of funny you mentioned that, and obviously you did talk about a gallery, but one of our blind spots, I think, when we think about art districts, and I'm guilty of this as well, is you think of studio art, right? But you kind of have to remember that uh, performing arts as well are just as important and could be part of these attempts to 
uh, engender, you know, a, a new a new vibrant or at least bring back a vibrancy to these areas through performing arts, right? Um, although you mentioned a gallery, so it sounds like this is also going to be about studio art as well. Well, yeah, you know, so I'm biased because I'm, um, you know, I, I grew up as a performing artist. I was a singer and dancer um, and, you know, in every school play. So I guess an actress in every school musical uh, in, in high school. Um, but yes, I, I actually consider what we have in our windows now uh, public art. Um, and so that is um, it's, it's, we essentially turned the windows at Newark Symphony Hall into a gallery while we're closed. Um, there's photography, there's poetry. So uh, all of those things contribute to an artist district. And you're right, if you're just thinking an artist district is solely gallery, you are wrong. Um, it also includes performing arts. Yeah, oh man, that's that's pretty exciting. And it's just, you know, it's, it's really cool because that whole area also just looks beautiful and to shift, um, you know, some some of the energy that's coming into Newark there would, I think, be really great for that area. I always keep wondering, actually, um, I don't know if you have thoughts on this, like how much opening a South Street station on the on the path would help with that as well, given that you are not that far away, right, from South Street, at least, or that part yeah. of the path is. Yeah, that, so that, oh gosh, there's been so many, as you know. I know, I know, <laughs> that's, I know. Been, that's a... Um, that's been a long conversation, but I want to go back to something you just sure. said, because I, I know you didn't mean anything when you said shift. Um, I don't think it's a zero sum game and shift sort of implies that. Um, I think, um, using words that are more like expand or include, but I don't want anyone to think that I believe that it's a zero sum, that somebody has to lose a little in order for us to gain. I think there is a whole lot for the entire city, um, but the entire stretch of Broad Street in particular that can be offered to the community. So again, I know you didn't mean anything about it, but, but I just want to make sure. I, I will also apologize because, uh, yeah, living in this town, um, you learn that like so you, the, you have to be careful with language, but not that you mean it that way. But uh, I totally agree with you because uh, a lot of times when development does come up, it's often talked about in those terms. And I wish there was a better word I could use, maybe share or something like that, this idea of spreading the, the energy with that, like in, in, a, in, a, in a positive sum way, not in a zero sum way. But I totally get what you're saying and I agree. Um, uh, no apologies necessary. Yeah. No apologies necessary. Listen, um, I, I, you read my bio at the beginning and you mentioned that I came from economic development. I know about all these things. I know about I know about protests over development. I've had nasty notes sent to me as a city official. Um, so I'm I'm sympathetic to all of these things, including um, language. So, well, yeah. Actually, this brings up a really interesting question. Um, and what's it like? You self describe yourself as a New Yorker, um, and this is a town that's very insular and. Uh, Let's just say uh, a little suspect of outsiders. How do you feel? Yeah, I know, and but this is true. I, you probably have experienced this. How do you feel your reception has been? And you know, I don't mean this in a negative way, but I really do mean this honestly. What's it like? How do you develop that rapport with people in Newark? Uh, maybe you've been here for a lot longer than uh, than uh, I mentioned in the bio, but um, how how's it been integrating yourself here? 
Yeah, so so listen, I've lived in New Jersey for 27 years, yet um, I know that New Jerseyans everywhere, including in Trenton, when I worked in Trenton, well, you, you could live in Trenton 50 years and they'd say, you know, she's from New York, <laughs> you know, that, kind, that, kind, that kind of thing. Um, I felt like I had an advantage because, again, I was somewhat social with people um, and had been somewhat social with people from Newark from the time that uh, I moved um, to New Jersey. I moved to New Jersey because I got married. Uh, but what's funny is it's different when you're social with people than you come to their city to work. So some of those same people that I considered friends were like, mm-hmm. So, so you're yeah. here now. Yeah. What are you going to do? You know? Um, and I, I think, not I think, I know that I have been fully embraced. But I was hazed a little bit. I will admit that. Um, I think there there is a bit of, especially because of the, the work that I'm seeking to do in a, um, a beloved institution. And so I think there was a lot of concern and fear that um, I was going to take away uh, Symphony Hall from the local people. And so I'm going to speak very plainly. What I was told very plainly is that a lot of people don't necessarily think of NJ Pack as theirs in Newark um, because it is the New Jersey Performing Arts Center, which happens to be in Newark. They did not necessarily feel that NJ Pack was theirs. Newark Symphony Hall, though, they're like, this is ours. <laughs> you know, this is our venue, and um, we're going to watch you. Tanisha and how you manage our venue. Uh, but I will say, um, again, I've been embraced. Um, I There are people who uh, send me messages to tell me about things that are happening around the building. I, I feel like I have an unpaid 24-hour security crew uh, who, who tell me about things and who are concerned. Um, when we had an unfortunate accident in front of the building, um, I got a message from a, a local resident that lives adjacent uh, at four o'clock in the morning. So I am very uh, pleased with how I have been embraced by the community. And during this pandemic time, um, I, I seriously, I'm one of those people that gets emotional. So I'm now getting emotional. There was someone who was like, oh, no, you're a Newarker now. And I'm like, oh, I'm a New Yorker. <laughs> I love it. So um, absolutely embraced. But it took two years. I've been two years here now. Uh, November 1st was my two-year anniversary, but um, but I was embraced. Wow. So thank you for that. No, that's really nice to hear. And I'll, I'll do what you can. I understand that you're you know in, a person who runs an institution, but I will share that um, there's a sentiment in this town around NJ Pack, and you can people can debate this and but I have heard people say there's a feeling around the space because of the way it's controlled and the way it's run as a, as a more of an outsider space. Not that there aren't events for Newarkers in there, there obviously are, but with Symphony Hall, there's a bit of a, it feels like a more of an internal institution. Um, even though both technically are, are have the, the name state, well, I guess it's Newark Symphony Hall, not New Jersey Symphony Hall, but there was always a state element to it because the New Jersey Symphony Orchestra started there, right? Right. Um, so there's always been this element that it's the premier venue in the state. Um, but I, I, I totally get what you're getting at, and I understand that, like you know, you you uh, you want you have a positive relationship with NJ Pack, but there are Newarkers 
that do feel that way. Um, and I'm glad to hear that you're about, you know, this, this thing you talked about earlier about positive sum and not zero sum. Um, Absolutely. But I will say that that, that feeling um, about Symphony Hall is what has helped shape what the future is going to be in terms of our programming. So um, at the top of this conversation, I talked about sort of the business model, but when I got here was really just sort of a first come, first serve, multi-purpose rental facility. Um, our enduring community programs were our, our soul line dancing, which happens once a month, and a children's performing arts academy. But we're gonna be much more intentional about our programming framework, and it's going to center uh, local people. And it's going to be centering uh, opportunities to develop uh, local performing artists and give them a real platform in terms of their own careers. And I'm really excited about that because when I was pitching this to potential funders, they said, that's really smart. And I said, yeah, I said, you know, we're 20 minutes away from New York. Look at the talent that has come out of Newark. Imagine if we could have a place where we could actually nurture that talent. All artists really want is space. And the first person to approach me about this was actually in my first year, and that was Savion Glover. Mm. I met Savion Glover, who is on the board of NJ Pack. So I met him at NJ Pack at an event, and I just gave him my card and I said, you know, um, I'm a fan. I followed you since you know you were a little kid on Broadway, and that was it. Next thing I know, I get a call from um, one of his team that said, oh, Savion, love the conversation. And then he came and met with me at Symphony Hall. And he said, I'm working on a show. I would love to develop that show here. And he developed that show at Symphony Hall. It was a show that was um, being performed at the Joyce in Manhattan, but it was developed at Newark Symphony Hall. The New York Times came and photographed his development of that show at Newark Symphony Hall. And it was the first time that during my time that we were featured in the New York Times. And I'm like, can you imagine if we did that for a lot of other people, that talent in the city? And that's what I want to do. Now, of course, Savion is already famous, but I want to do that for anybody that wants to have a place to develop their talent. And as you mentioned, we have these incredible venues. We have the Zeravon Concert Hall, which has a capacity of nearly 3,000 seats. We have the Terrace Ballroom, which has a capacity of 1,500. And then we have our Black Box, which is what uh, Savion used to develop his show um, that seats 250. So that is really uh, what I want. I want to build on that emotional attachment that is already exists for Symphony Hall with some intentional programming to continue to support local artists. I am so glad you mentioned the black box because I almost completely forgot to, cause you know, the, a lot of the, the attention's around the main stage, but uh, I'm a big theater geek uh, with a capital T and a backwards RE. <laughs> um, and I keep wondering, you know, I haven't seen live theater like proper, like, you know, when I say proper, I don't mean that to be exclusive, but I mean that in a very strict sense of medium, right? Like, you know, theater, what's called straight theater in the biz. Uh -huh. um, in Newark, since I was in elementary school, and like, not like, you know, I have to probably put my eyes out better, because I know NJIT has a venue where some students do some stuff. Um, but I keep thinking like, man, I want to see theater in this town. I mean, I also, partly this is partly a bias on my part, because I've actually, 
I have pieces I've written and worked on that haven't been performed yet, but I keep wondering, like, you know, what's in for the black box? You know, it, you know, what's what's uh, what's the future for that space? So it sounds like we, you and I need to have a conversation about <laughs> the program that we're going to be developing, um, that we are developing for the black box that we call the lab. And so the lab, the, the idea around it is to develop works. Um, it's, the workshops can happen there. Um, we, you could have performances there. You are 100% right that that black box is ripe for theater. And that's, um, you know, the first person to use that was someone that I sort of stalked on Instagram. I saw that Daryl Stewart had a play that he was working on. And he's a teaching artist also at NJPAC. Uh, but I saw that he had a show that he was working on. I said, where are you doing that play? And he said, well, I was thinking of showcasing it as part of the Newark Arts Festival. And I had my staff call over to Newark Arts and say, he's showing that at Symphony Hall. And he showed it in the black box at the Newark Arts Festival in 2019. And it was a huge hit. And everyone was like, wow. I said, well, this is what this thing is for. This is what, this is what our space is for and this is how it should be utilized so that's an example of of intentionally uh doing programming that supports the arts community that the local people can benefit from because he i think he packed the house it was i think at capacity so that's something else that i i want um when the world open backs up (laughs) Uh, that that's something else that i'm excited about being able to see theater in the black box um i i keep Fearing that at the end of this crisis, everyone's going to do everything at once. <laughs> like one big never ending, like, you know, sort of the, the jazz age, 1920s, like World War One's over. Let's just go nuts. <laughs> yes. Um, and do everything at once. Um, but let me round this out. I just want to ask, you know, now that you hopefully have an audience uh, here uh, with this podcast, you know, can you share with us, uh, obviously, you know, capital investments and fundraising is a huge deal. And I don't, I, I don't want to, um, uh, put that too much to the side, but what can people do to support Symphony Hall, both inside Newark and outside Newark? Like, what, what, are, the, what are the things you guys need there? So, well, I want a lot of positive word of mouth, first of all. I want people to say, I've been hearing about all of the things that are underway, not planned, underway, that is already happening at Newark Symphony Hall, whether it is the renovation, which again, I consider us already in that first phase, um, engaging an architect is means we, we're serious, we're, we're getting started. Um, but if they wanna financially support, uh, they can also go to newarksymphonyhall.org. There's a whole donate button there that they could support um, and also sign up for our email list. That's the way that we're going to continue to keep people posted about what's happening at Newark Symphony Hall and follow us on on social media. Uh, Just stay connected to us. And again, spread the word about us because I, even though we are Newark Symphony Hall, I really want us to reclaim our international prominence that we once had. And I'm excited, um, and we could talk about it when it happens later, that we have, thanks to Rutgers, established an Asian connection. There are students in China who are actually working on aspects of research around Newark Symphony Hall and helping forge those connections with people in other uh, countries. And so I'm hoping that includes Portugal. Um, 
But yes, so recap, go to NewarkSymphonyHall.org, sign up for our email list, tell people, you know, I'm hearing some great things about Newark Symphony Hall, um, and just send great thoughts. Yeah, and uh, listeners, I'll put uh, in the show notes um, links to all this, you know, to Symphony Hall's website, to its social media, to all these great campaigns you guys are doing. Um, It's just... It's astounding. I mean, like this international thing that you just mentioned, I didn't even know. Like, and, and I try to keep my ear to the ground in this town, and it's uh, both, a po- both a positive thing in the sense that there's a lot going on, but it's amazing how much is under the radar, right? And the fact that you're uh, focused on uh, not just, you know, there's often a talk about reinvigorating the space for new workers, but you're, you have such a global approach, it sounds like, too, which is really exciting because I think... Um, you know, Newark is a great town, but we can't sustain this place on our own. We need the help of people from outside who will help also help us take care of this space, I imagine. And to have people from the rest of New Jersey, but also sounds like from the rest of the world, be excited about this space is one way to, you know, I think to keep it alive. Um, I'm going to tell you that thanks to Newarkers, we have connections to Ghana. We have connections to Liberia. We have connections to China. We have connections to the Philippines. In fact, our sole sold out concert last year was Vice Gonda in the Saravon Concert Hall was Vice Gonda, a Filipino act. So I'm pretty excited about us being able to intentionally tap in to those global connections uh, for the future. Wow. Um, And this is just, you know, it's, Music, haha, to my ears um, to hear all these great um, future plans. And I, and it's just to reiterate something that we talked about at the beginning. COVID did not stop Newark Symphony Hall. It just gave it some time to think, right, and to plan and to do the things that that need to happen to make this space thrive. Um, and so I'm I'm so glad that you came on, and I'm so happy that you're the first podcast that we've had in a while. Um, and so I, I just want to ask you the last question I ask every single guest I bring on the show, which is, what are you excited for in Newark? I'm excited about the, um, the, the rallying around and an embracing of um, Newark Symphony Hall by Newarkers. I really am. And I'm also, I'm, is, I hope it's okay to say it around me. Um, you know, it is it is a little intimidating coming into a community where even though it is New Jersey's largest city, it's kind of insular. So I am excited about the embracing of Newark Symphony Hall and my leadership of Newark Symphony Hall. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's important that we celebrate leaders who are who are doing things. And um, obviously, we don't want to, um, we want to hold them to account and make sure that they're responsible. But at the same time, we shouldn't be afraid to give applause uh, to people like, you know, you who are leading our, our institutions. Um, and on my end, what I'm excited about in Newark, um, so th- there'll be more information about this in a little bit, but um, a bunch of people are launching um, a sort of literary magazine-ish. It's, it's, it's hard to describe what it is on January 1st. Um, there'll be more information about it, but keep your eyes peeled. Um, there may be someone you recognize with a piece in it. Uh, and that's all I'll say for now uh, to our listeners. Um, but there, um, there's some exciting stuff happening on January 1st, so keep your eyes peeled. Um, sorry to be such an anticlimactic person with it, but... <laughs> 
No, I think it's exciting. Obviously, you're involved, so congratulations. Yeah, yeah. Um, so thank you so much. Uh, that's it for this episode. I would like to thank our guest, Tanisha uh, Nash-Laird. Uh, this is Manny Antunes, host and producer of the Pod and Market podcast, editing and sound engineering by Ba Fraze. Podcast and logo design provided by Robert Conti. Additional creative input by Samantha Cateas. We have a Patreon, which you can find on our website if you'd like to support the podcast. We also have some merchandise available for purchase. That's a new thing. Um, if you'd like to, uh, if you have a subject you'd like to hear or discuss on the podcast, please email podandmarket at gmail.com or contact the pod through social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And I'm going to end the podcast today uh, with a quote, like we always do. And um, it's funny you mentioned uh, urban planning and design uh, earlier, and I'm so glad you did because it allows me to segue into what I'm reading this month, which is the Power Broker. Um, which is, a, there's a fun game right now during COVID, which you can play, which is every time you see a talking head on CNN or MSNBC or PBS NewsHour, try to look in the background to find this book that everyone has, but no one's read is the old joke. Uh, but I'm doing it, I'm actually reading it, and, and I'm very close to being done. It's a 1200 page book, which is insane, but it's a nonfiction biography, um, which I think all biographies are technically, uh, <laughs> uh, about Robert Moses, who's this intense, figure who is both celebrated for building a lot of the parks and highways in New York City and bridges for that matter, but also denigrated for, I mean, this biography basically took a person who was otherwise a hero and showed how awful his approach to building was. He basically blasted through neighborhoods. Um, yes. He, he, Fiorello La, LaGuardia was basically at the whims of this man because he could not do anything unless he got his approval. And Robert Caro, this author, he's also famous for writing the Lyndon Johnson biographies, um, basically um, makes the argument and I think does prove it that this was the most powerful person in New York State, if not in America, to never have been elected to public office. Um, And uh, I think there's a great quote in this book about the tension between getting things done but also being respectful but also the problem inherent with power so this is the quote i'm going to end with science knowledge logic and brilliance might be useful tools but they didn't build highways or civil service systems power built highways and civil service systems power is what dreams needed not power in the hand of the dreamer himself necessarily, but power behind the dreamer's dream by the man who to put it there. Power he termed executive support. Thank you. 